DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. You're joining us for Political Rewind on a very important day in the, for the legal community, for women's health advocates, uh, for those who oppose abortion. Uh, as you just heard in the NPR newscast, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals this morning will hear the case of Georgia's uh, what's so-called heartbeat abortion law, HB 481, passed two years ago, which uh, essentially outlaws abortion in Georgia because uh, it uh, forbids a woman from having an abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy, a time at which many women don't even know that they're pregnant. Lower court uh, declared that that law was unconstitutional, and so it's never been put into effect in Georgia, but the 11th Circuit will take up the case today. It's one of any number of abortion cases that have become so significant in the last months here. I mean, you've got the Texas law, which went into effect on December 1st. The United States Supreme Court will hear the Mississippi abortion law, which was drafted specifically uh, to get to the Supreme Court and to force the court into deciding whether uh, Roe v. Wade is, in fact, a ruling that they want to stick with or are ready to overturn. So there's a lot to talk about. We're going to focus today on 481 and the impact of that, among other things, uh, on the show today. Uh, But we'll start with conversation about the 11th Circuit Court and Georgia's abortion law. I'm joined, as I always am on Fridays, by uh, AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy. You read her column in the Wednesday and Sunday editions of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and she oversees the jolt, which is kind of a must-read every day for those of us who uh, follow politics closely as uh, she and her colleagues lay out all of the interesting, important, uh, and sometimes curious stories in politics of the day. Hi, Patricia. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, Real quick, I always want to give you a chance. You've got a Sunday column coming up, and uh, it'll be posted online sometime today. Tell people what what they're going to read. Yeah, so I'm wrapping up my Georgia politics road trip, and my final stop was in Blue Ridge, which is the home of House Speaker David Rolston. And anybody who's listened to him the last couple of years knows that mental health funding is a big priority for him. And that is really driven largely by a crisis that they're having in Blue Ridge, um, where the law enforcement ends up really being the mental health care provider, unfortunately, just because of a lack of access. And it's a statewide issue, so I think we'll continue to hear about it, but it really is happening in the speaker's backyard as well. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Stephen Fowler is with us, GPB political reporter. Uh, Stephen, uh, we know that uh, Governor Kemp finally made the formal call to launch the uh, special session to redistrict, redraw maps of the state, the political maps of the state. And uh, we'll talk a little later in the show about a piece you did in which you talked to former uh, redistricting leaders Uh, and got some thoughts from them on how that process unfolds. And as you point out in your story, it's a little more complicated uh, than simply saying, we want uh, more red districts, we want more blue districts. Yes, they do, but there's more to it than that, Stephen. 
That's right. And now we know that November 3rd is the date when the frost is on the pumpkin. And I saw, as our AP <laughs> colleague Jeff Ami said, things are going to be pumpkin spicy under the gold dome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll get to that a little later in the show. But we do want to start uh, uh, with talking about the um, uh, action that's going to be going on uh, in the uh, federal appeals court today. And we're very happy to be joined for that conversation uh, by Subhasri uh, uh, Narasimhan, who is a professor of public health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Um, Subhasri, also what's important to note is that you spent a great deal of time uh, down at the Capitol watching the debate over 481 unfold and uh, got a pretty good handle on just what this law, uh, should it go into effect, could mean to uh, women, particularly in Georgia. Have I got that right? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Capitol, and I also um, worked with my colleague, Dr. Dabney Evans, to really systematically analyze the arguments in the bill. So we looked at all of the publicly available hearing data to examine um, the if there was any scientific or medical evidence base for the arguments and of which we found um, zero. So most of HB 481 um, supporters use these tactics of misinformation and misrepresentation and often sort of lip service lending credibility to their positions. So they would kind of link um, what would seem like a medical or scientific uh, fact um, to a credible source, for example, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. But most of the um, facts were not the not legitimate facts, or were not actually in the studies that they were linking. So, so, so I want to ask you a question about that, and then, of course, Patricia and Stephen, feel free, please, to join in. You know, one of the you talk about medical facts. One of the things that um, was debated in the in, in, and put into place in the Georgia law, and it's and it's also in the Texas law, is this notion of the detection of a fetal heartbeat at six weeks. And in fact, there's controversy around that. Is there really a heartbeat at six weeks, or is it some other kind of electrical activity that doesn't re relate to a genuine heartbeat at all? So I'm not a medical professional, so I can't speak from the standpoint of a, a doctor. But what I can say is the arguments that were made in the bill were not um, in line with uh, with statements made by ACOG or uh, with statements made by um, uh, some of the leading uh, medical and scientific communities. Essentially, um, the way that these uh, things were positioned um, were not um, in line with uh, almost no uh, body supports heartbeat bands. So and there's an overwhelming amount of social science and public health research demonstrating the significant harms of these particularly ideologically motivated abortion restrictions. Um, Patricia, um, um, Subasri was one of the co-authors of a piece that appeared in The Hill as the Georgia legislature was debating 481, and, and I was in one sentence in that caught my attention, um, Patricia. They wrote, enacting HB 481 may make Georgia unwelcoming for doctors interested in practicing in this state due to fear of criminalization 
It will likely worsen care of those women living in counties with few practitioners. And they point out that Georgia is the highest death rate of pregnant women in uh, the nation, Patricia. And of course, we heard that come up during the debate over 481 any number of times, Patricia. Uh, yes, and I think that, um, you know, when you get into the details of the bill, um, that is really where you heard a lot of complaints from Democrats and um, looking for explanations um, for the sort of medical defense uh, above and beyond the feelings that people have about what is obviously such a controversial and difficult issue for anybody. And nobody's pretending like it's not. Um, I think the political reality here is that women in Georgia um, most of them have grown up in a world where they never knew that it could be possible that the right to an abortion um, would not exist, uh, whether or not they would ever want to do that, whether or not they would ever have the need to do that. Um, were just were, I think, decisions that, that people sort of never wanted to engage in, but they always assumed that they would have the choice if it was presented to them. Um, and I think this is really going to have huge political ramifications for Republicans um, going into these midterm elections among women voters um, who are already, um, I think, streaming away from Republicans in a lot of cases. Um, this is an issue that I think they have just never faced before. It has never been a reality that this uh, uh, would be illegal before, and um, now it's presented in front of them. Um, and I think that uh, we'll see how it plays out in 2022. Subhastri, in your research, who would be uh, most uh, uh, immediately and, and most dramatically impacted if 481 uh, does in fact end up passing constitutional muster, at least at this stage? It's pretty well agreed upon that these uh, bills like this really disproportionately harm lower income women, women who are already living in poverty, and uh, women who are marginalized in the state, so particularly women of color or uh, people who identify um, uh, as non-binary or um, uh, LGBTQIA. These are all groups that already are disproportionately affected when it comes to healthcare access, and they're even greater affected when they they're trying to when we're trying to um, when we're thinking about bills like this, which essentially take away their access um, to much desired and much needed abortion. Stephen, it's interesting that um, the the polling in 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 this country always shows that a majority of Americans do, in fact, uh, support the right of a woman to choose. But at the same time, Stephen, the, the, the public polling also shows that a, a majority of, of, of people are willing to uh, uh, go along with the notion that there should be some restrictions on abortion. But Stephen, this is no longer a matter of a restriction. This is a virtual banning in, in, in the way the, the Georgia law is set up. Right. When the law was introduced and debated in 2019, there was this desire to have Georgia have one of the most restrictive laws in the country and to be the test case that would ultimately go to the Supreme Court and decide uh, the future of Roe versus Wade. You know, one of the pieces of Georgia's bill that's different from what you see in other cases is this concept of fetal personhood, um, which gives certain economical and other logistical benefits to the uh, to the unborn, to the fetal activity that you detect. And that was something that was kind of novel in Georgia's bill as 
Republicans tried to find different ways to challenge this law. So now we have it in court two years later coming after the recent other decisions about abortion legislation. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in court today. Subhashri, I know your time on our show today is limited. Um, give us a, a, an over, overview of what, can, what are you looking at and what has your work on this uh, bill led to in terms of your, your overall thinking about this? So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns when we think about um, these kinds of severely restrictive um, abortion bills. But what we can say is that bills like this are really a human rights violation, making someone carry an unpre- uh, pregnancy they're unprepared for or um, they do not desire is basically the antithesis of reproductive justice and a serious human rights violation. There's no medical or scientific basis for bills like this, and um, there's no upside to it either for the state of Georgia. Um, you, one of your also biggest concerns here is the, the the legislature talked about how in many ways they're trying to protect the health of women, but I think in your article for The Hill and in other work you've done, uh, you suggest that, in fact, women's health are more endangered uh, by this measure. Yes. I mean, there's been some recent data that's actually just asked um, a survey of women in Georgia what would what would they do if, um, if they weren't able to uh, get a desired um, abortion um, in that immediate moment. And um, essentially what women have said is that, one, they would try to possibly go to another state for medical care. But the other part is that they might incur the risk of taking harmful substances or even inflicting self-harm during pregnancy. What we know from the data on developing or developed countries is that um, really when abortions banned, abortions don't go down. Um, they People just shift to self-management and self-management of abortion, according to the WHO, is very safe if people have effective protocols and information. But given the climate of stigma in the South and particularly around abortion in the United States, many people don't have access to this kind of education. So they may resort to taking um, measures that are unsafe. Um, and so we have to, we ha- really have to think about that. And, you know, just to leave you all with a, um, with a little statistic, you know, uh, I think that this conservative statistic is that uh, many people have to travel more than 50 miles to be able to access uh, this desired service. But um, in the case of Texas and SB8, for some Texas women, it's over 200 miles. So yeah. we're also talking about not just uh, a lack of access to abortion. We're talking about a full spectrum of reproductive health services that go away when these clinics close. Sue Basri, Nara Simmons, uh, as I said, I, I, I know you have another uh, uh, a meeting or an appointment to get to, and so we're going to let you go. But I really appreciate your giving us a, a snapshot of the work that you've been doing on 481 and looking at abortion uh, bans more broadly. So thanks for being with us uh, today. We'll invite you back when we have time to really talk about all of this in uh, much greater depth. But thank you for being here Uh, today. We're going to continue with lots of other political news on the show today, but we're in a pledge drive, which means it's time to ask you to please support the work we're doing here at Political Rewind and at GPB Radio. Here's how you can do it. 
Stephen Fowler and Patricia Murphy continue with me on today's show. Patricia and Stephen, before we move beyond the abortion story, by the way, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, began uh, their uh, day at 9 o'clock this morning. You can stream the hearings online. I think 481 is second on the docket for today. Uh, So Sam Burmistaz is posting a link to the, uh, to the court's uh, live stream if you want to watch it as it unfolds uh, this morning. Um, Patricia and then Stephen, I'd love to have each of you weigh in on this. It's already been alluded to that, uh, look, this is a highly charged political issue moving into 2022 and elections in Georgia that, that we think are going to be close in many races. Uh, Patricia first and then Stephen, wh- what risks and what rewards do the Republicans who have pushed so hard for this law uh, uh, take as the courts adjudicate this matter? Well, I think the risks and the rewards are very similar to the dynamics that we've seen with a lot of issues and a lot of uh, personality, I would say, personality contests in the Republican Party lately. Um, the the further right they go on any issue um, or on any person like Donald Trump, uh, the better it is for their primary election. This Republican base has grown extremely conservative in order to win in a Republican primary. Um, it really behooves any Republican uh, to really uh, be very, very tight with the base. And this base is extremely anti-abortion. So um, the rewards for a Republican in a primary are very obvious. I think it's when you get to a general election, especially statewide in Georgia and in a number of these congressional districts like the 6th District and the 7th District, and then also um, in these state legislative races, now that it's the state legislature and not Congress that's making these decisions, every one of these state uh, legislative races uh, will have this in the general election as an issue, especially for women voters. And I just can't stress that enough. Women voters make up the majority of voters in Georgia. Um, Republicans have had a really tough time keeping women voters in those suburban districts, um, like uh, uh, in the northern suburban districts, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, um, North Fulton. Um, They've got a real problem on their hands already. And I think that the abortion issue, especially if it's a live issue, um, is really going to be a motivating factor for Democrats and even some um, moderate Republicans who, when you pull them, uh, as Republican women, um, are not comfortable with the direction these laws are going in. Right. And I think, you know, to pick up on that, it, I think there are, in Georgia in the last few years, there have been few things that have more motivated Democrats to get to the polls than Georgia's abortion legislation. <laughs> you know, abortion legislation and voting and election legislation are two things that are equally motivating both Democrats and Republicans. But uh, I think when you think about it from the perspective Uh, Republicans are playing offense with this legislation, and Democrats are also on the offense uh, in opposition to these bills. And I think you do run the risk of backfiring and having a higher Democratic turnout, a more engaged Democratic base that in a state that is demographically shifting, politically shifting, you could end up bringing more Democrats to the polls with your voting legislation, with your abortion legislation and comments in a way that might further accelerate the state's inching to the left. Well, Stephen, it's going to be interesting to see if, in fact, Republicans in the legislature double down on abortion legislation. We already know that Butch Miller, who's running, of course, 
uh, for lieutenant governor, has said that he is looking at introducing a Texas-style abortion bill in Georgia, which would, in fact, take the power to punish abortion uh, violators out of the hands of the uh, the state itself and put it in the hands of individuals. Essentially, uh, uh, you could, on your own, file suit, as you can in Texas, against someone who is uh, in, engaged in performing an abortion, in any way uh, aiding the uh, person who is performing an abortion or who wants the abortion. And, and, and we know that, that there's going to be some talk about that in the session. But, Stephen, what's going to be interesting, do the leaders want that? Does David Ralston want to see that bill get very far if it over on the House side? Um, will Jeff Duncan work on that bill? Does Governor Kemp want the, the legislation to, to, do they want to take another step on abortion? Well, you know, you have to consider that the state Senate is probably going to be the most volatile chamber and the most volatile part of early 2022. You have seven or eight incumbents right now from both parties that are running for higher office that will be aggressively pushing to win primaries. You've got the lieutenant governor, the leader of the chamber, not running for re-election and acting very much like a lame duck in some hand, but trying to uh, keep a more moderate median tack for his party that probably won't be successful. And then you've got the House side with David Ralston keeping a strong grip over the chamber, uh, the adults in the room, as he's like to call it. And so you've also got Brian Kemp facing, I mean, Brian Kemp is still facing attacks from his right flank primary challenger saying that he's not strong enough on abortion, even though he signed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. So I think you've got a powder keg with 2022, and there may be a lot of things introduced that don't necessarily make it all the way to the finish line, but in a primary year and a redistricting year and a year that has you know, everything at stake, seemingly, I would expect to see way more, you know, things that are thrown out there. And it could be a world where something goes through. But again, you run the risk, like you mentioned earlier, Bill, polling shows that most people, including Republicans, you know, favor some degree of abortion restrictions, but not the most extreme. So Georgia already had strict abortion regulations. The new law takes it even further. And you really can't go much more extreme than vigilantism, which is what some people are accusing the Texas law of being. So you run the risk of really amping up the Democratic base at a time where Democrats are surging. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we're going to see a lot of movement in the state Senate. And um, with so many of the state senators running statewide in Republican primaries, I think it's going to be a race to the right. Um, and Butch Miller, who is um, one of the more mild-mannered senators in the chamber, I think has already said, as you mentioned, Bill, um, that he does want to introduce that Texas-style uh, legislation. Um, and I think that is the kind of scenario that uh, somebody like David Ralston would rather not see happening with the shadow of the 2022 elections coming up. Um, but it's a real, you know, it's kind of like running around with a live grenade. Um, this is a real issue. I mean, these are real people on the other side of this legislation. And it has to be about more than can I get myself elected, um, you know, six months from now. I think women are going to hold lawmakers to a much higher standard than that. Um, so, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We've got to get to another pledge break. Um, so I want to do that uh, now. But I want to point out that we've still got a lot to talk about on the other side and plenty of time uh, to do it. Uh, among other things, Governor Kemp is now officially 
uh, called to the special session of the legislature to start the first week of November. He has limited the call to just being about redistricting, which uh, some of his uh, 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 conservative Republican uh, 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 people out there wanted a lot more than that. Uh, He seems to be holding the line against that. I want to talk about that. Uh, Trump's in Georgia tomorrow. I want to talk a little bit about uh, that as well. So we got a lot more to go on political rewind. But you know, the reason we get to talk about these subjects is because you out there fuel us. It is your support that pays for our show, pure and simple. Many of you have already been contributors, and I'm very grateful uh, to you for doing that. I hear from an awful lot of you out there about how important Political Rewind is to you, and I can't tell you how meaningful that is to me, and I hope it continues to be true. So if you're not supporting us, there is a chance to do it right now, and here's how you can do it. So Stephen Fowler and Patricia Murphy, let's start this segment by talking about the Trump visit to Perry, Georgia tomorrow night. I'll tell you what I'd like to do that, Patricia. You, in the jolt this morning, uh, quote Trump in a radio interview that he did with a conservative radio host. You can tell, though, that the host is a real American because the homepage uh, for his radio show shows a beautiful, bold artwork of an American eagle clutching an American flag <laughs> in its claws. So he's he's the real thing. Uh, anyhow, Trump goes, he bashes Kemp in the interview. He'll be here tomorrow night. There's no chance he's not going to bash him, I assume, during that uh, event. But then he does something else that's really strange. He says that if Kemp is the nominee, he's not going to be able to win the general election because the base isn't going to show up for him. Patricia, that is precisely the problem that Republican that that you know Kelly Leffler and David Perdue faced uh, in the runoff when Kemp talked about fraud. Now he's basically giving Republicans a reason not to show up in the general election next year. It's a strange strategy. <laughs> Bill, I have been observing Republicans have pre-traumatic stress disorder in fear of what Donald Trump was going to say or do leading into the 2022 elections. I don't think we knew so quickly exactly what he was going to do. And this is it. This is the nightmare. This is Donald Trump saying the base won't turn out for you, Brian Kemp. That is what he said leading into the 2021 Senate runoff. The base is not going to turn out. The base does not trust these elections. Um, it's just the the talking point has been slightly tweaked, but the talking never stopped. And so um, when David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler lost those races, a huge part of it was because GOP voters did not turn out in the same numbers in the 9th District and the 14th District, which is the most Trump, the most conservative districts um, that we have here in the state. And so Donald Trump is just really setting up an identical scenario here against Brian Kemp, um, even though Brian Kemp, we need to go ahead and say, is extremely conservative, has done nothing that Donald Trump wouldn't inherently like, except not overturn the results of the election. Um, it's the only thing he's ever done that would have bothered Donald Trump. But for <laughs> Donald Trump, that's the only thing he needs to do. And I mean, he just ripped into him in that interview. And so I think it's just a, a warm-up act for Saturday night. Well, you know, the, the, the rally Saturday is going to feature Trump's hand-picked candidates for lieutenant governor, U.S. Senate, and secretary of state. 
governor has been the one white whale for Donald Trump. I've heard he's asked Marjorie Taylor Greene to run and she wouldn't do it. You know, they're floated David Perdue and he won't do it. And so, you know, it's, it's the one thing Georgia has been on Trump's mind since before November 2020. And this rally is going to be the latest effort to try to really undermine the Republican Party's own chances in a demographically shifting state. It will be the first major campaign appearance for Herschel Walker, who has been traveling around the state, meeting in small groups with donors and other people. And I've talked to some people that have met with him that said that Herschel has done a really good job of explaining why he's running and some of the broad strokes issues that he feels that he can tackle in the U.S. Senate. But this is going to be the prime time reveal for Herschel Walker in front of potentially tens of thousands of very vocal supporters at the Perry Fairgrounds. And so, you know, while one track is going to be anti-Brian Kemp and anti-Brad Raffensperger and anti-Jeff Duncan, another important thing to watch is Herschel Walker's big debut, especially in light of a story in Politico this morning that said uh, Mitch McConnell is okay with Herschel Walker's candidacy. He talked to him and said that he was going to be a pretty good candidate. So there's a lot of personal momentum running into the weekend, if you will. <laughs> I think what you just said is important because as recently as mid-August, Mitch McConnell was essentially saying the last thing the Republican Party of Georgia needs is Herschel Walker running for the United States uh, Senate. So that change is, in fact, a good sign uh, for the Republicans who hope, think Herschel can be the standard bearer that puts him across the line next year. Well, you know, in theory, there is this pro-Trump slate that will win primaries. So you'll have a pro-Trump secretary of state candidate. You'll have a pro-Trump lieutenant governor candidate. You'll have a pro-Trump U.S. Senate candidate and Brian Kemp. And in theory, if everyone coalesces around Herschel Walker at the top of the ticket, it would be enough to beat back the Democratic incumbents or challengers. And so, you know, uh, I wouldn't count out Gary Black, Georgia's agriculture commissioner, who's got a lot of grassroots support, a lot of endorsements and things. But I guess the outside of Georgia perspective is, you know, putting all of this time and energy and effort around making Herschel the best campaign candidate that he can be might be the best chances for Republicans. And it's also important to note that one thing Mitch McConnell said, uh, talking about Mo Brooks in neighboring Alabama, who's been very antagonistic towards Republicans. Mitch McConnell said in that interview, he said, well, he's a Republican and the magic number is 51. So it's all about Republicans regaining the majority. And from the Washington perspective, Herschel is going to be the one to get them across the goal line. Uh, Patricia, you know, Mitch McConnell's change of heart about Herschel Walker, having had a conversation with him, strikes me as something that's worth talking about just for a minute from this point of view. It's kind of easy for a lot of people to make fun of Herschel Walker running for United States Senate on the basis of his having been a great football star at the University of Georgia. I mean, that is ripe for uh, satire. Also, he has been very low-key and kept out of sight uh, as he was deciding on whether to run. But, but, but there's another reality here, and that is Herschel Walker is a very—he's uh, smart— He's got a very charismatic personality. Uh, he really knows how to talk to people. It's, so it would be dangerous to just go with this trope of, well, he's a dumb football player. He is not that at all. 
uh, he has the ability to present himself as a pretty viable candidate, assuming he can come up with the issues that Republicans care about and talk about them in a way that they get. Yes? Yeah, well, he was also the valedictorian of his high school class. Yeah. So I think we can take exactly. that football player off the table. Um, I think, you know, I don't know that it's because Mitch McConnell met Herschel Walker and was bowled over by his uh, strengths as a general election candidate. I think it was also a reality that Mitch McConnell tried to recruit a number of Republicans to run for this Senate seat against Raphael Warnock, and they turned him down. I mean, there was a parade of Georgia Republicans in and out of Mitch McConnell's mm-hmm. office in the Capitol. And they, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell has come away from that effort empty handed. He's nothing if not shrewd and strategic. Herschel Walker is by far the strongest candidate right now for Republicans based on name ID alone. Um, And you add to that his just inherent appeal and the affection that a lot of Georgians just naturally feel for him um, because they feel like they've known him for a long time. weaknesses that he has, um, the numerous allegations of threats against women and his wife. Um, his close association with Donald Trump will be his what he's got going for him and what got, he's got going against him. Um, but I think what's most intriguing to me about Herschel Walker is just what we're going to learn about him as he gets into this race. Some candidates mm-hmm. start off very bad on the stump and become excellent. Others start to kind of seize up and trip on issues. I think McConnell's and other Republicans' concern about um, Herschel Walker is he is such a risk and such an unknown. He may turn out to be fabulous. He may not. Mm. <laughs> and that's why yeah. I think this race is going to be fascinating. And, you know, and, you know one, thing that doesn't, one thing that doesn't necessarily make headlines and splash enough that is mentioned in this Politico interview is that Herschel Walker's campaign team are some of the same brain trusts behind Johnny Isaacson's Senate campaign and Senate staff. So he's surrounding himself with people that know the landscape, that know the playing field, that know really what's going on in Georgia. So, you know, people may not Herschel Walker for being a longtime Texas resident, but the team he's put in place to get him hopefully into the United States Senate is probably one of the best teams you could ask for in Republican politics. And I think that plays into that picture as well. Yeah. And to okay, well, it's gonna... that, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say nope. his um, communications director um, is Governor Kemp's former press secretary. So they've managed to combine Kemp world, Trump world, Isaacson world, and just a whole team of people who really know what they're doing. Um, so this won't be one of those campaigns that goes off the rails because the staff can't figure it out. They know what they're doing and we'll see if he knows what he's doing. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna! It's gonna be so much fun on Monday on Political Rewind. We're gonna be able to talk about Hirschfeld's big debut. We're gonna talk about what Trump had to say in Perry. So uh, it's gonna be interesting to watch all that unfold over this weekend. Um, with the time we have remaining, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the fact that the governor has now made this call for a special session starting first week of November. It's expected to last three weeks. Stephen, is there any reason to have been surprised that he? Uh, restricted the call virtually only to redistricting, although the AJC says that there's a little language in there that could allow for them to have a city of Buckhead referendum vote, too. But are you surprised he wanted to keep it so narrow? It's not surprising for two different fronts. One, politically, um, you know, there's not a lot of time. And so 
there's potential grandstanding that would be involved if he did talk about crime or if he did talk about election laws or things. Um, and those are not things that he wants in this very narrow, tailored, uh, we need to get in, we need to get our job done and get out. But from a more practical perspective, the, the redistricting process takes a lot of time and there's going to be a lot of force trading, especially with the margins as narrow as they are in all of the different state house, state senate and congressional districts with the way the demographics have changed and other things like that. It's going to take a lot of time to figure out these maps and figure out a what's the reality B what's probably going to be immediately challenged in court and really see, you know, the thing about redistricting is that any changes you make to one district has to come from opposite changes to other districts. So you can't just craft a perfect district for House Speaker David Ralston and draw the lines and say, aha, this is my district. You've got two or three or four other ones around that have to change. And so when you have 56 state Senate districts, 180 House districts, and 14 congressional districts that all have to be laser precise with their populations, it takes a while to put together. And other things might be a distraction from getting those districts put together. Um, we're not going to have a chance to talk about it in any depth today, but we, we will point people to the story that you filed on the GPB News uh, website, which in fact talks about some of the complications as you talk to previous leaders of the legislature in redistricting. Uh, Patricia, uh, there are were those people who were pushing the governor to take up a bill that would highlight how bad crime is in Metro Atlanta uh, as, as a way to uh, attack Democrats. But he's going to be laser focused because, as Stephen points out, this process is going to be very complicated. Yes, the process is very complicated. You can imagine they might want a little distraction every now and then during that special session. Um, I think there is language in there, um, and Stephen even brought to our attention the state constitution that gives the legislature a little bit of wiggle room during that special session. We'll just have to get closer and see exactly what they want to do with that. Another piece of legislation um, that I've heard handful of Republicans trying to push is the Buckhead City legislation to bring it up during the mm -hmm. special session. Um, and uh, we'll have to see if any leaders would go for that as well. But there, are, the, the appeal has been made. Yeah. Um, Stephen did point out to us that, that the governor's call uh, can be amended. Uh, it has to happen before the special session starts. But if the session starts, the governor and three-fifths of the legislature can add items to the agenda. Thanks to Stephen Fowler, we learned that. So we'll see how that session moves forward. Uh, boy, there's so much to talk about, and we are out of time. We come to the end of another week on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for the conversation uh, today. And thank all of you out there for being with us this week. Um, as we've gone through our pledge period, and we'll continue for a few days next week. Uh, but again, those of you who have helped us this week, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. Jesse Nicewanger, Sam Burmis, Dawes, and I all thank you because you're the ones who allow us to come in here every day and do this program. And as I leave you uh, for a, the weekend, let me just say take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, Tell your friend who won't get a shot, maybe it's time he should for his own safety and yours. I'll see you next week. Here's more on how you can become a, a donor to GPB Radio.